This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a great show today. There's a, there's a lot to talk about, actually. Uh, we're going to be talking about what happened to a well-known journalist, comedian, podcaster, Katie Helper, who was uh, fired by the Hill for her I don't even know what to call it anymore. She she basically said, yes, Israel practices apartheid and we need to confront it and join the BDS movement, just like we did in South Africa. Obviously, and, and by the way, she happens to be a Jewish American at the same time. She was crucified, vilified, and, and fired by the Hill. And uh, we're going to talk about her case a little bit. We're also going to be talking about the four years since the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, where there's key pieces of evidence that are still missing, <clears throat> according to his uh, fiance, who says that uh, that information is in the hands of the Turkish government. His cell phone, his iPad, his laptop has really important information, and she's not able to get it released from the Turkish government, which is really unfortunate. So we're going to be covering those two stories in depth. But before we get there, we're going to watch an interview that you did with Diana Butu, who is a former legal advisor to the PLO. She's going to talk about the, I mean, I still have these images in my mind, Jamal, but the death of seven-year-old Rayanne Suleiman. This was the young boy who was chased and terrorized to death. Um, the U.S. indifference to the murder of Shireen Abu Akla and the Israeli Prime Minister's speech at the United Nations. It's a far-reaching interview with Diana and well worth watching and listening to. That's right, Jess. And uh, let's go to Diana Bhutto. Thousands of Palestinians turned out last Friday to mourn a seven-year-old Rayan Suleiman who died while being chased by Israeli occupation soldiers on Thursday an account rejected by the Israeli army, but which prompted the U.S. State Department to call for an investigation. Ryan was running away from the soldiers in the occupied West Bank village of Taqwa after Israeli soldiers tried to enter his uncle's house. Israeli soldiers have killed 35 Palestinian children, 19 in the West Bank and 16 in the Gaza Strip since the beginning of this year, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Joining us to discuss this and more, Diana Bhutto. Diana Bhutto is a Palestinian-Canadian lawyer and former spokesperson for the Palestine Liberation Organization. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Diana. Thank you, Shamal. It's always nice to have you on. This is a heart-wrenching story, really shocked everyone, probably. Seven-year-old was literally scared to death. Israel has ramped up its attacks and incursions on Palestinian towns and villages since the murder of Shirin Abu Akleh. Any more details about the death of Rayan Suleiman and why are we seeing this uptick in Israeli incursions, uh, especially in Jenin? Oh, you know, Jamal, we're seeing this because they can. Uh, there has been nobody who has put the brakes on Israel's murdering machine at all. We had expected, we being Palestinians in, in Palestine and globally, had somehow thought that with Shirin's murder, 
that there would be some pressure that would be brought to bear on the Israeli government. But instead, we've seen that there's been no pressure or like just simple, you know, a surface pressure that's been brought to bear on on Israel. And so all of this continues, everything from the invasions into West Bank um, cities and towns, the bombing campaign over the Gaza Strip, the fact that they can go in and arrest kids sometimes from school, the fact that this poor little boy ended up dying from fear. His heart stopped from fear. And there seems to be no end and no. there's no... Um, even consciousness that's a, that's present inside Israel to ask themselves why and and given that that doesn't exist, I don't expect it to ever exist. This is what colonizers do. One would have at least expected that people from the outside would be would would be pressing for a stop, but they aren't. Instead, they've effectively given Israel the green light. Last week, we had a, a representative from Al-Haq a, a couple of weeks ago. We also had someone from Al-Damir. And also at the same time, they've shut down um, basically Palestinian civil society. Uh, there is no end in sight uh, despite a rejection of these so-called terror charges by both the United States and the European Union, you find the Israelis are still on, on, you know, on a campaign to convince the world that what they've done is right and all Palestinians basically are terrorists. Yeah, that's because, uh, Jamal, that's the last frontier. When you think about what it is that Israel has done, they have effectively killed off any forms of resistance and labeled and outlawed any form of resistance. So if you look at resistance, resistance has been has been banned. Um, it's been it's been you know sidelined. It's been uh, given all of these labels. The world stands against uh, actual resistance. Then when you go down to the next level of of the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Authority has itself been it has itself been chopped down, um, also by its own making, to be clear, but also by the Israelis. They've been the, the second arm of attack on the part of Israel. The third wing of attack, or the third level of attack, has been on the BDS movement and on civil society globally, with all of the all of the attempts to try to crush BDS. And this fourth is to try to crush civil society as a whole. That's why I'm actually very worried for um, for people who are in these organizations. I don't take their statements very lightly when they indicate to the heads of these organizations that they will suffer consequences. I don't take those threats at all lightly because we've seen that they have done everything in their in their power to either assassinate or imprison or both. Um, when it comes to leaders of of uh, political parties, when it comes to the Palestinian Authority, when it and and now we're seeing it when it comes to civil society as well. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this. I mean, they've arrested some, released them, but that's that's the first kind of and 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 many of those uh, leaders in these organizations have received phone calls uh, right. threatening them. Uh, I want to move on to this topic, which really first it's I don't know if sometimes you want to laugh at it or you want to cry, you know, in a statement issued shortly after Russian President Vladimir Putin signed treaties 
to incorporate the regions of Donetsk, Lansk, Kherson, and Zaporstan, uh, no, Zaporizhia, into the Russian Federation. Israel foreign ministry, and this is what he said, that they support the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. We want to recognize the annexation of the four areas by Russia. Then we have U.S. President Biden saying that Putin can't seize his neighbor's territory and get away uh, with it. And earlier, uh, Secretary of State Blinken denounced the referendums in Ukraine as Russian land grab. I want to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's as you put it, you don't know whether to laugh or to cry. And we've seen these parallels time and again with the way that the Israelis have behaved when it comes to Ukraine versus the way that they behave when it comes to their own action and the way that the United States has reacted to um, the Ukraine and to Russia versus the way that the United States has reacted when it comes to Israel. It's and it's it's sadly laughable, but yet it it highlights the hypocrisy. You know, here we are, um, eight months into this war, and eight months into it, we're we're seeing that the hypocrisy is only deepening further and further and further. Where with everything from uh, people who are in Ukraine who are resistance resisting being being uh, labeled freedom fighters, whereas Palestinians are not. Uh, where we see that that Israel is so trying to align itself and, and claim that it is somehow Ukraine, when in, in fact it is an aggressor. And we see that when it comes to this issue of annexation, that Israel is, was one of the first countries to say that they don't recognize um, this annexation, and yet they do recognize it when it comes to their own annexation. It's 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 laughable because... All that they need to do is using that same argument. All that they need to do is somehow uh, just claim that this is their historical land and you know and be done with it because that's what Israel seems to have done and the world seems to have gone along with it. Um, the whole process, Jamal, is quite is quite stark and quite laughable. In fact, just yesterday, the U.S. ambassador to the OSCE had uh, also put out a tweet saying that. Um, that imagine how you would feel if somebody came and took over your land and claimed that it was theirs. Well, like we know, we know exactly how it feels. We don't need to imagine because we live through this day in and day out. And, uh, and so this hypocrisy is always shining through. And it's very clear that when the world wants to apply international norms, they do. And when they don't, they don't. Politics aside, I mean, do Israelis believe these lies? I mean, the average Israel outside those politicians, do they actually believe, do they bury their heads in the sand when we talk about the that they've annexed the Syrian Golan Heights or East Jerusalem and so forth? Absolutely. They've buried themselves their heads in the sand. In their, in the minds of, um, of, of Israelis here, all of these are not annexations. They're either one of two things. It's either temporary or necessary. And temporary means that, you know, it doesn't have to be in this generation, but in some generation, it will go back. And necessary is because they've decided that it is necessary. Um, there's, you know, I don't know if you've been following so closely, but even when it came to Israel, accepting uh, people from Ukraine as refugees. You know, Israel doesn't allow refugees into the country. They, they've not ever signed on to the refugee treaty. 
They did, however, allow a limited number of uh, people from the Ukraine to come in and but under under conditions, the first being that they that their family members had to submit a very heavy deposit close to 10,000 U.S. dollars that will be returned to them upon their departure. And the second condition is not a condition, but a second sort of interesting thing was that many of these refugees were being housed in settlements. Hmm. So you can see how Israel is both selective in the way that it it views humanitarianism. It's all for show. But really at at its core, what it aims to do is to seek and to strengthen its colonial um its colonial roots. That's it. Well, there was also, I think, an article today that uh, mentioned uh, Avigdor Lieberman saying uh, that uh, they want to see more Russian uh, immigrants coming into yes. the country. Yes, provided that they're the right religion, being Jewish. Um, and that's the, that's the whole point. This was the big debate surrounding the, those from the Ukraine was that, uh, that they wanted them to be Jewish. And if they weren't Jewish, well, then really, do we really want to be, this is again, in their words, do we really want to be diluting Israel with, um, with people who are not Jewish? You, you can see it's all, it's all, it's a racist colonial project. And as much as they try to, to sell to the world that it's not a racist colonial project, it is. And it, and it shines through very, very clearly. It's just a question of whether people want to see it. So the Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid uh, came to the United Nations and, and, you know, saying that a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was the right thing for Israel. And he said, despite all the, optical, all the obstacles, a large majority of Israelis support the vision of this two-state solution. Um, one of them, a uh, future state will be, a Palestinian state will be a peaceful one. And he went on to talk about terror. I mean, I mean, yeah, is yeah, this yeah. another dog and pony show? I mean, who was he talking to? Was he talking to the international community? I mean, because this is not what he says to the Israeli public. No, no, he definitely doesn't say this at all to the Israeli public. To the Israeli public, he tries to show that he is a hawk because he is a hawk, by the way. Um, I think we make a mistake by labeling him center. He's not at all center. This is the same man who said that his father didn't come to uh, Palestine to be ruled over by Arabs. Um, you know, he's a racist. He's a racist to his core. And, uh, and, but he is also somebody who is very well experienced and understands that what the international community wants to hear is some level of moderation. And it seems to be the case that all you have to say are the words two-state solution and world leaders salivate all over you. Uh, it's like, oh, oh, he said the magic words. Oh, he said the magic words. But really actions on the ground have proven to be the exact opposite. Yeah, your Lapid is a hawk. He's less of a hawk than some of the other people are, but he's a hawk and he's a racist and he does not believe in freedom for Palestinians. If he did, he has the ability to stop settlements. He has the ability to make sure that um, these apartheid laws get overturned. He has that ability, but he's chosen not to because at his core, like all of the other leaders, they fundamentally believe in the concept of a greater Israel. They fundamentally believe that Palestinians should not be equal. They fundamentally do not believe in the right of return. And they fundamentally never want to see Palestinian freedom. So, um, so yes, he said the words, but these were words that were directed towards the international community so that he can get their support come election time. 
and uh, and they weren't at all directed towards the Israeli people. Israelis don't care about what happens to Palestinians. It's been shown time and time again in poll after poll just how little it is that they care about uh, about Palestinians. And so, yes, we can talk about you know these like fantasies of a two state solution, but when 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 Israelis are actually forced to make a decision about evacuating settlements. We saw what happened in 2005, and that was in the days when the Israeli public was less right-wing than it is today. Then we saw, uh, I want, want you to comment on the speech by uh, President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, he had a whole list of complaints, and uh, I don't know, again, who... What was what what was the end game for him? I mean, we've seen the show again, and I mean, were people paying attention to what what he was saying? It's uh, it was like a rinse repeat. You know, I was on the rinse repeat cycle, rinse repeat, rinse repeat cycle. Um, and I don't think he has anything different to say. Look, I I, I want to step back for a second and I and talk about why he said what he said. You might recall, Jamal, that a year ago when he went before the UN, he said, if in a year's time things have not changed, then I'm going to have to make a decision. So here was his decision. and But at its core, it doesn't mean anything. He's been saying these same statements over and over again, which is that they're going to they no longer recognize Oslo, that they're no longer going to abide by the agreements. But when push comes to shove, Oslo is about security arrangements that is all that it is about that is all that is, is that it that is left of it and he still to this day continues to abide by it just today we saw that israel assassinated two young men and the it's not that the palestinian authority is going to do anything or stop security collaboration or that it's going to actually begin to defend palestinians or sub- begin to support resistance it's going to do nothing. So for as much as he says that he doesn't believe in Oslo or that he's suspending Oslo or not recognizing Oslo, he continues to do everything to make sure that he does recognize Oslo because at the end of the day, all that he is looking for is international support, not for Palestinians, but for the survival of the Palestinian Authority. One final question about the murder of uh, Shirin Abu Akhle. Uh... I mean, it has definitely garnered international attention, uh, yet the United States has literally done nothing. Uh, And uh, uh, what's the message? I mean, what's the message here from from Palestinians as far as getting justice? I know that the Abu Akhle family either has filed or is filing with the ICC. I mean, is this the only route since... The United States really elected not to stand with its own citizen. The avenues, there are a number of different avenues, Jamal, that that the family can pursue. The main thing that that the family has been pushing for is that they keep saying that it shouldn't be up to them as individuals to be pursuing these avenues. It shouldn't be that the Abu Akhli family has to fly all the way to Washington, D.C., to get a meeting with Secretary Blinken. It shouldn't be that the family has to go from one 
knock on one door at Congress to another door at Congress to be getting support. But that's unfortunately what they had to do. The Abu Akhle family flew to to Washington, D.C. in July um, this year, this summer. They had a meeting with Secretary Blinken. They went from, from pretty much from door to door, knocking on the doors of representatives of Congress to demand justice. And yes, there are other avenues that are open, but it shouldn't be the case. It should be that this administration is doing it on its own. After all, this is not just any other country. This is the country, meaning Israel, this is the country that receives the most in terms of U.S. taxpayer dollars. More than any country, if you take away Egypt, it's more than the entire continent of Africa. And yet Israel continues to get this money without conditions year after year. We know that the weaponry comes from the United States. There's an obligation on the U.S. to pursue this, and yet they've chosen not to. So instead, we see that there have been two small developments since Shirin's murder. The first is that Hadi Amir actually met with um, the family of Omar Asad, Omar Asad being the 80-year-old man who was killed by the Israeli army in January of this year. He's a, he's a Palestinian-American. He was dragged out of his car uh, thrown onto a construction site and left to die. Hadi has actually met with the family. The second just, is just, that to, just calling... to clarify, who's Hadi Amr? Hadi Amr is uh, the assistant undersecretary of state for for uh, for uh, for the Near East. Um, and so he, you know, he effectively, in simpler terms, maybe. So he he has met with. Hadi Ahmed, who is a representative to Secretary Blinken, he was effectively the, instead of the consul general being the number one, he is the person who liaises the most with the Palestinian Authority. He has met with the the Omar Assad family, the family of Omar Assad. Omar Assad, as you know, is the man, 80-year-old man who was um, dragged out of his car early this, this year in January, on one of the coldest nights of the year, at three o'clock in the morning, thrown onto a construction site and left to die with his hands shackled. Since Shidian's murder, we've seen that, that this meeting has actually taken place, something that hadn't happened in the past. The second development is that the U.S. administration is now calling for um, rules of engagement, to, to have changed rules of engagement. Right. What that what that means is that they recognize that there's a problem because there is a problem. I can tell you, Jamal, as somebody who who spends a great deal of time in the West Bank, that it your life is uh, can be your can be taken away at any moment, at any moment, for any reason whatsoever. It's not at all surprising to me that that little boy named Rayan actually died of fear. Because you can see the fear in the eyes of children who, um, who've, li- who've been terrorized their entire lives and who hear the stories day after day after day of our young people being killed and, uh, and their bodies never being returned. Shabbat, just since the beginning of this year, there, Israel has killed close to 150 Palestinians. That's almost, you know, that's, it almost every day that we are having a funeral 
for for a young Palestinian. That's almost every single day. And uh, and so when the U.S. says that they want to examine the rules of engagement, it's because they know that there are no rules of engagement. The rules are you get to do whatever it is that you want to do, and nobody is ever going to hold you to account. Diana Buto, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. My pleasure. Thank you, Jamal. That's the voice in the face of Diana Buto, former PLO legal representative and basically Palestine legal expert Diana Buto. And as usual, Jamal, Diana is spot on, very cogent. And she highlights the ongoing thing that we've been talking about, the hypocrisy when it comes to American citizens or assaults to children, uh, basically in Palestine, seven-year-old boy, um, Rayan Suleiman. A very compelling interview. I, I wish more people would listen to Diana and, and hear what she has to say. Yeah, Jess, I mean, how often have we uh, spoken about um, Palestinians getting silenced, uh, Jess, or getting fired, like Mark Lamont Hill on CNN and, and, and others? And so uh, our next story deals with the most recent one, which is The Hill, which, by the way, uh, The Hill pretends to be, um, I would say it pretends to be uh, progressive, but but it, nonpartisan, it, it, nonpartisan, nonpartisan, and that's it's all for freedom of expression and freedom of speech and so on. So uh, you know that's the latest story that we're going to be talking about, which is the Hill has fired Katie Helper from its morning show, Rising, for describing Israel's policies as tantamount to apartheid. Um, you know, blatant act of censorship to sil silence pro-Palestinian uh, pro-Palestinian voices, or 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 actually just voices who want to hold Israel responsible accountable. and accountable, and accountable. Exactly. exactly. And uh, you know, so you know, she's of course, as you've mentioned, she has many roles. She's also the co-host of Useful Idiots with Mike Taibbi and and the Rising. And, um, you know, before long, you know, I mean, if, if I want to go maybe a little bit, a little bit into for those who are not aware. And of course, uh, uh, Katie Helper, she put her own uh, video on YouTube explaining what happened, but basically over a report where she defends uh, Rashida Tlaib for the attacks that she was facing. Exactly. Because of the use the term of apartheid, which is <laughs> not anyone's inventions, but it's it's the based on reports by Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Israel's own human rights organization, Beth Salem, the United Nations, and so on. So so this is not, you know, like in the past, you could not it's use not breaking that, that A no. word, you know, they're trying to strike fear in your heart when you go near that A word. But everybody's saying Israel's an apartheid state. Their own politicians are saying that Israel's an apartheid state. Israel's own former attorney general wrote an, a whole op-ed describing Israel as an apartheid state. So that's the latest, the latest victim. So, of course, the first thing they do 
is if you have a story like this, then they kill a story. And that's what happened. She had her show. They killed the show. And then when she questioned, why did you kill the show? What happened? The next step, she gets fired. That's right. And it should be, we should just add a little bit more detail. She, she's been producing these shows for a very long time, Jamal, and she's never been called out or editorialized or, or edited out or denied any of her shows in the past. It's the first time in, I mean, hundreds of shows that she's done where she was, her story was denied access, let alone, you know, being fired for her views, Jamal. Uh, she made a very compelling uh, argument and uh, analysis on her YouTube uh, kind of explanation of this. And she she was she goes, yeah, I get labeled uh, as a self-hating or self-loathing Jew. But if you happen to be Arab or Muslim, you get viciously attacked as an anti-Semite. So she she was able to call out the hypocrisy uh, in addition to the kind of hypocrisy of like calling her out as a journalist uh, talking about apartheid uh, in the uh, and and Israel. So I I want to encourage our listeners and viewers to check out what she said on YouTube. It's very compelling, but uh, she's not the first, and she won't be the last person who. And let's be clear, Jamal. It's because it's in this country because people are able to articulate and speak about this a little bit more freely in other places. A little bit. I I would say say a little bit. <laughs> but they're more free to talk about this in the apartheid state than they are here, is yes, basically my yes. point. Well, well, here, but also in Europe, we've discussed what happened to uh, Palestinian journalists working for Deutsche Welle. Right. right? And, and one, right. one Palestinian, one Jordanian, uh, and I, I think four um, working for Idocha Villa, who were fired, and 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 actually there was a lawsuit, and the, which found out that uh, Deutsche Villa was was wrong. But again, as as you mentioned, uh, Halper is far uh, from the first to be fired for her free speech, for her pro-Palestinian, I would say, free speech. Mark Lamont Hill lost his position at CNN for a speech calling for a free Palestine from the river to the sea, which he did not say on CNN. He was like, I think, invited to a panel by the United Nations right. or something like that. So he got fired. And then current affairs, that's why I said also current affairs editor Nathan Robinson lost his, his regular column. He had written for years for The Guardian, for four years, I should say, and that's uh, the British Guardian, uh, after sarcastically just tweeting that Congress is not actually permitted to authorize any new spending unless a portion of it is, direct, is directed toward buying weapons for Israel. That's his tweet. He got fired. This is the, this is the British progressive liberal Guardian. He got fired, uh, you know. And then, you know, we last what was it last week or the week before we talked about Facebook? I mean, that's right. We don't want to talk about legacy media, but also in social media. And now there was a whole investigation and a whole report conducted to see about Facebook censorship, which, by the way, was commissioned by Facebook. <laughs> that's right. This was and a study they commissioned. They commissioned, which found basically that. They, they censor, censor Palestinian voices. Palestinian voices all the time. So there is that whole double standard, whether it is in news reporting, whether it's in editorial, whether it's in moderating 
Palestinian uh, voices or Palestinian posts versus Israeli ones. But I think this is something that uh, is a little more specific, which we need to uh, continue to highlight, which is uh, Katie Helper is not a Palestinian. She's not a partisan. She is a journalist, podcaster, comedian. She also happens to be Jewish American. And a journalist being able to articulate, ironically, you know, under the First Amendment, her ability to speak and articulate whatever she wants. She gets crucified. She gets attacked. She gets fired for this. And um, it's the classic pep, Jamal progressive except for Palestine, whether it's The Guardian, whether it's progressive media in Europe, whether it's The Hill, which is arguably, uh, I don't know if I'd call it progressive, they claim to be nonpartisan, but the point is you 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 can be fired for that, but not be fired for calling. And I, I, I mean, you know, uh, you can call Joe Biden whatever you want in this country. You can you can issue death threats against uh, a senator and his wife, which is what Donald Trump did last week against Mitch McConnell and his wife, uh, and get away with it. But if you happen to speak your opinion based on facts that other NGOs have uh, determined that Israel practice apartheid, you're going to get fired. You're going to get crucified and you'll be fired. Well, my question to you about this, is this, is this actually working for them? I mean, uh, well, I think it's backfiring. It is backfiring. I two mean, weeks it's two ago, things. we had also a guest we should mention right. who, who left her job at at uh, at uh, Google. She, right, she, right. Also, also for a whole thing about uh, Israeli spyware and wherever exposing Google for collaborating with the Israeli military. Right, and she was forced to to basically leave her job. She quit uh, along with others. <clears throat> well, it, is it working? No, it's not working in a sense, Jamal, because people don't feel f- fearful anymore. Yes, they may lose their job, but it's not stopping them from speaking. That's number one. But I think the other angle on this speaks to the desperation of APAC, to the desperation of pro-Israel forces in the United States to the desperation they feel that they have to fire and attack people for you know basically speaking their mind so their 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 desperation is speaking very loud you're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM we're moving on to our next story, just uh, October 2nd, uh, basically yesterday. Can you believe uh, it's four years? Yeah, October 2nd, 2018, four years ago, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, <laughs> journalist, uh, was murdered in Istanbul at the Saudi embassy. He... I, I had to repeat the story. Everyone knows the story. Chopped his his corpse was chopped to pieces. They never found found where his uh, remains are, and uh, all roads led to MBS. And somehow he wiggled his way uh, now back. You know courting the international community, President Biden traveling all the way to Saudi Arabia, shaking hands with him, or fist bumming, whatever, <laughs> the fist bump, the famous one. And uh, yeah, so 
people are not speaking about him anymore in a way kind of like this 40 years ago um the only time we hear about Saudi Arabia is is in context of uh, the war in the Ukraine about oil production so we need the Saudis we meaning the west needs the Saudis and everybody else because on the war in the Ukraine so uh, sadly his story is disappearing except for an an anniversary like this or when other journalists remember him but in this case uh, his uh, his wife, widow yeah his yeah. widow uh, she wrote uh, an, an editorial uh, editorial uh, still questioning the validity validity of the investigation but i thought there was a very uh, important piece uh, in 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 her writing which uh, actually makes a lot of sense because she's talking about key pieces of evidence that hold answers to that's to, right to his de- his death which is mr kashogji's personal devices two mobile telephones a laptop and a and a tablet uh, which now which are in the possession of the turkish government they haven't released that they haven't released the information on on these uh, on these things there is also uh, the camera surveillance um, from, right from the from both the Saudi embassy and and the Turkish police or Turkish uh, security and other other businesses there and also the uh, connection that uh, that she herself because she found that that later on her own mobile her own cell phone right pegasus was, pegasus was actually she was monitored by through pegasus by the Saudi government or who others i guess but mostly we know it's uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, so she's saying which is uh, i, I want to read actually maybe her last sentence where she says the turkish government has been clear that it does not intend to proceed with either the investigation into my husband's murder or the trial it should therefore hand over any evidence still in its hands to me as the only way wife of Jamal upon his death i want all parties to be held accountable for my husband's murder including the governments of saudi arabia the uae and the israeli nso group very powerful jamal very powerful uh it's a very powerful state and the fact that she included the nso and the makers of pegasus software which directly contributed enhanced facilitated the the brutal murder of her husband is very telling you know i i want to go back to something you said before i mean his his brutal murder shocked the world people are not talking about it uh mbs got away literally with murder but it's not just getting away with murder as you said he's being celebrated he's being courted he's being fist bumped as the price of oil uh you know and the demand for oil goes up his celebrity and embrace by the world community is getting even larger he's dancing with vladimir putin uh politically jamal and is not being held accountable for this brutal murder he's being celebrated i mean i don't you call it just a fist bump but for the president of the united states to go to riyadh for MBS to come to the United States the president flew to Riyadh to fist bump uh, MBS it's 
which, it's which, disgusting. Which, which we should also should say it's not just like about optics, Jess, but also uh, President Biden made a promise. He said that during his campaign. I mean, I mean, absolutely. We and hold he... politicians responsible for their words, not just uh, their actions. But he said specifically when he was campaigning. What did he say about MBS? Well, I don't. I don't remember exactly what he said, but uh, he called Saudi Arabia a pariah state. I mean, he used the word pariah. He'll work to keep it a pariah. All of those things hold them accountable. All that. All this kind of rhetoric about what he says about uh, MBS and and the Saudis for their grotesque human rights violations, and then he goes and fist bumps him. So, when. What what message do you think that sends to MBS? It says, I can get away with anything. I can do whatever I want, and nobody's going to hold me accountable. That's basically what it says. Well, he reminds me of Donald Trump, basically, who said that he can kill anyone and on get Fifth away Avenue with- and get away with it. Well, MBS did that and, and, and killed a journalist, a journalist who lived in the United States, and got away with it. And that's the sad thing about it. And that's all for oil. Really, it's all about dollars. It's all about petrodollars. It's all about oil that he's given. He's given a, a, a pass, and and actually, uh, I think also Turkey uh, does not have clean hands in this. They're playing. Oh, absolutely you know, not, Jamal. They know, absolutely not. I mean, they know a lot more that they are not sharing because again, they don't want to rock the boat with Saudi Arabia. They don't want to rock the boat with the United States. They want to play kind of in the middle, maybe holding on evidence that that they're going to use as leverage in the future. But uh, sadly, we haven't seen justice uh, for the Jamal. widow of Jamal Khashoggi. No, it's very sad, Jamal, because, um, you know, in spite of the rhetoric, despite the rhetoric, you know, we find that this man's brutal assass- brutal murder and assassination, there's no other way to talk about it. Is gonna go un- is gonna go unaccounted for. No one will be held accountable. Neither the UAE nor MBS nor the Turkish government, and sadly, not even Joe Biden will be held accountable for you know, you know what happened to this uh, this journalist. I feel sorry for for the journalism community. I feel sorry for Jamal and his widow. Um, but I I feel like we have to continue to cover this story, Jamal, because as again, as the price of oil goes up and the demand for oil goes up, MBS continues to be embraced as uh, as 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 an incredibly, if not one of the most important world leaders right now. And by the way, I should add that OPEC Plus just announced that they're going to cut back oil uh, production so that the price can go back up above a hundred dollars. A barrel. So, what are we going to do, man? We have to keep Jamal Khashoggi's uh, legacy and story alive, which we will continue to do. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. I just want to say one thing: we're going to go uh, on a short hiatus, but we have plenty of shows right there. You can go to our website, uh, ArabTalkRadio.com, to download any shows that you have uh, missed and we will see you in four weeks or so yep see you then